Good morning, church. If you would please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We are concluding uh, our eulogy here to the Lord. A eulogy is simply praising someone for who he is, or in the case here, we use it usually at a funeral, who he was or who she was, and what they have done or what they're doing. In this case, this eulogy in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is praising God for who he is and what he's done and actually what he's going to do. Today we get a peek into the future. So Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, we're going to be reading from verses 11 to 14. And before we read those verses, let me just uh, say something that I meant to say yesterday, yesterday, last Sunday, and I forgot to. Corey reminded me of this. He said, you know, Al, you told us how you were going to talk about how the Trinity is seen in this passage, and you never did it. I said, well, that's not unusual, Corey. I forget my own name these days. So uh, let me go ahead and tell you that I think in this text here, what we have is in verses 4 to 6, I believe we can see God the Father adopting us. And in verses 7 to 10, I believe we see God the Son redeeming us. And this morning, in verses 11 to 14, God the Spirit sealing us, or assurance from the Spirit. So I think we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here. This is a Trinitarian passage. So let's look today at the role of God the Father, excuse me, God the Spirit, sealing us. And to do that, please read with me. Ephesians 1, verses 11 to 14. In Him, that's speaking of Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's a rich phrase there, friends. We're going to explore that phrase this morning. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would anoint me with Your Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, this morning to serve Your people and that you would anoint them, pour your Spirit out upon them. Oh God, the Holy Spirit, come and and instruct us as your people, and encourage us as your people, and as was prayed earlier, fill us anew and afresh. Encourage those that are discouraged. Strengthen those that are weak. Fill those who feel so empty this morning. Open the eyes and the minds of those who are ignorant. I count myself in that group. Don't have a clue. Oh, but you are gracious. So, Father, we pray to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Pour out now your Spirit. Build your church. May the gates of hell not prevail against it. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what we're going to talk about this morning is a seal. It's the seal of the Holy Spirit. And to do that, 
I want to try to inform you along the lines of the first century. Why did they seal things? What were seals for? Today, we don't have seals, all right, necessarily. I don't carry around a seal with me. I don't mark things with my seal. But back then, seals were used quite often, and they were very, very important. And as I thought about an illustration, I thought back to the wedding that I had the privilege to be a part of this last Friday night. You may know this, but Alex Suarez married Mela Pino, and uh, Friday night, Corey performed the ceremony. I had the privilege of interpreting it into Spanish, or at least a semblance of Spanish at times. It's always a humbling thing for me. Um, and, and, and at a certain point in the wedding, Corey said the following. He said to Alex and Mela, as they were standing in front of us, we are now going to seal the verbal expression of the covenant with the exchange of rings. And so I thought, you know, here's a seal. And, and I think it works. So, so stay with me here for a second. So what's, what's happening when the rings are exchanged? Well, number one, it is, it is a, a visual. It is a visual. And it seals what Alex and Mela shared with each other. They made these profound vows. And I think it works in this sense. Doesn't it represent possession? Right? In fact, if you've ever been to a wedding and seen this, uh, they have the unity candle. So you have the two candles on either side that are lit, and then you have this big candle in the middle that's unlit. And so at a certain point in the ceremony, it happened on Friday night, Corey said, now they're going to light these, this unity candle. What do the two candles on the outside represent? Two independent lives. And now they take them and they light the candle in the middle and they extinguish the candles on the outside, being careful not to extinguish the candle in the middle because if they do that, they're in big trouble. There goes the whole union thing. I've seen people do that. Blow it. Ah, I blow them all out. But what does the candle in the middle represent? I'm no longer my own. I've been united with you. In fact, the scripture that Corey read was, was out of Genesis 2. The two, they shall leave their father and mother and cleave to one another and the two shall become one. So it's a seal. It's, it's a seal that says, my body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Desi. And her ring is signifying that her body doesn't belong to her. It belongs to me. That, that we're one flesh and one in the spirit. What a great picture even of what we're looking at here. Because in Christ, remember in him, that phraseology in Christ in him, 11 times in these, in these verses from verse 3 to, to verse 14, 11 times in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him. Well, don't you see? This is a picture of marriage, of possession, of two people becoming one. And marriage is a picture of what? Christ, represented by the groom, loving and giving his life for the church, represented by the bride. We are the bride of Christ, the church. That's one of the metaphors in Scripture. So instead of giving us a ring, he gives us something much more precious to seal that, to indicate his possession of us. And it's the Spirit, his Spirit. He seals us. Do you see that? So the assurance from the Spirit is really the sealing of the Spirit. We don't have a ring as His bride, as His people. We have His Spirit that seals us. And so that's what this text is all about. God, the Holy Spirit, sealing us as His people as his inheritance. In fact, the main point of this passage is, in fact, we are God's inheritance, sealed by God's Spirit. 
We are God's inheritance, sealed by God's Spirit. So let's take a look at that. Let's walk through that in these verses. Look at verses 11 and 12 again, please. Point number one, we are God's inheritance. Let me read those verses again to you. invite you to open your Bibles and If you need a Bible, we have some on this table because we're going to do some work in the text. And I want you to be looking at Scripture while I'm preaching. This is important stuff. I want you to study it for yourself. In a moment, I'm going to introduce a tension for you because there is some disagreement on how to interpret verse 11. And I want you to be aware of that. I want you to study it for yourselves and and you to to understand the text. I'm here to serve you by teaching. But, But the text is what speaks to us. God speaks to us from his word. So look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So let me introduce the tension for you. And as I introduce this tension, I want want to challenge you to study this for yourself. In the ESV, it says clearly, in him we have obtained an inheritance. But I think that the Greek here, which is in a passive voice, is saying it's not so much that we have obtained an inheritance actively. That word obtained there, it's not in the active sense. It's in the passive sense. And I believe what it's saying is that actually we are God's inheritance. In fact, some versions... We'll translate it that way. And I, and I want to challenge you to study it for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. There, there, there are commentaries that go either way on this. But, but I, think, I think this interpretation fits with the rest of the text. For example, the big story of Scripture is what? God is calling a people. God is calling a people. So so, so what what, what Scripture is saying is, at the very beginning of time, God has a people. He's calling them. The people rebel. They're in bondage. And so God promises to bring a Savior who will call his people out to himself as his own possession. That's the big story of of Scripture. And actually, starting in Ephesians 1, I just want to take a quick moment to try to defend the interpretation, I think, here that is more appropriate. It's not so much that, that we have an inheritance that we're obtaining, but rather that we are God's inheritance. When you look, for example, look at verse 4 of Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, verse 5, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So what do you see there? God's choosing us. God is obtaining us. God is adopting us. And then moving, moving out a little bit from um, that section, look at verse 18 of Ephesians 1. Verse 18 of Ephesians 1. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So it's his inheritance. So here's the thing I want to introduce to you. We 
are God's inheritance. Now, listen, it works both ways. Because if we're God's inheritance, guess what? He's our inheritance. Do you see that? But I think if you study scripture, I think if you take a look at the Greek here, which is in the passive voice, I think if you look at the big story, which we're about to go back a little further to look at the big story, what you see here is that we don't choose God, he chooses us. I don't obtain my inheritance. Kind of like as if I had a rich uncle, which to my knowledge I don't. And he were to die. And suddenly I find out that he was, he was you know, very, very wealthy. And then I get a lawyer, and I'm going to go obtain my inheritance. Right? Maybe some of you have been involved in that. Settling in a state can get ugly. But you're the aggressor. You're the active one. You're trying to get your inheritance. The Greek here doesn't support that. The Greek supports a passive voice. So I think what the Greek is saying is, God, God says this, I choose Pino as my inheritance. Now I understand exactly what you're thinking. Are you crazy? Why? Typically, an inheritance would be something that brings you riches, joy. It's a good thing. There is no good thing in me apart from Christ, nor in you. But don't you see that's the point? That's the point. Okay, go with me. I can see you kind of, everybody's kind of looking at me funny. Go back to Deuteronomy 32. Now, I told you, I'm challenging you to study. Listen, here's the challenge. You go study this. You go look at the commentaries. You ask God about this. You study the scriptures. But look at the big story of God choosing a people. Go all the way back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. Remember what's happening in Deuteronomy? It's the people of God. They're going through the desert. This is right about, right, it was written right before they're going to go into the land. So Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. They had been redeemed out of Egypt, which last week we saw was a picture of Christ redeeming us out of the, the world. And look at Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. It says this. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. Okay, so that show, that's God giving to the nations their inheritance. Got that. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Look at verse 9. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob His, God's, allotted inheritance. I know it doesn't make sense. Why would God choose us as as his inheritance? Not only that, here's what really doesn't make sense. We found out last week that to get his inheritance, he had to pay. If I were to tell you, listen, you have an inheritance. Just go down to the court house and pay to get it. What would you say to me? Don't repeat that. And as a minimum, you go, are you crazy? We call that junk. I'm not interested. See, God chose us. God redeemed us because from the beginning, he wanted a people. There's this phraseology that you find in the Old Testament. It says this, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. You find it in Psalm 33, 12, if you want to jot it down. Psalm 33, 12. You find it in Deuteronomy 4, 20. Deuteronomy 4, 20. We just read something like it in Deuteronomy 32. So so the idea is here, I think, that God says, I'm going to inherit this people. We saw that earlier in verses 4 and 5 from the foundation of the world. They're going to be my people. I'm going to adopt them. 
and they're my inheritance. Now, it's also true. If he's my inheritance, if we're his inheritance, then he's our inheritance, right? right, So let me illustrate that. So so Corey and Cindy are going to be going to Russia on Tuesday. And Lord willing, they're going to go have a court case, and and the court is going to award them Lana. I call her Lana because I can't do the other one. And she's going to become Lana Grace Smidgen. Oh, man, there's all kinds of symbolism here. There's going to be possession. She's going to be a smidgen. It's going to be a seal. Literally, Corey was telling me that when you adopt a child from Russia, literally, the clothes that are on her back right now in that Siberian orphanage that's probably minus 29 degrees, she will, they will remove those clothes. She, they will get her naked. Now, they won't see her naked, but what will happen is they will have to bring their, her clothes to them, and she will be all the clothing she has is taken off of her, and they will provide her the clothing. But they've chosen her as their inheritance. And she will get the riches of all that they have to include their name. She'll be sealed. Don't you see that in Christ? We've got filthy garments on us in a place far worse than a Siberian orphanage. And we don't emerge with a a stitch of clothing on us because it's filled with sin. But God covers our shame and our nakedness with the robes of the righteousness of Christ and gives us his name and adopts us. Does that sing for you? It's not about me getting my inheritance. I'm his inheritance, chosen by God. So, I'm a little passionate about it, but you study it for yourself. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. God chooses us. So yes, we obtain an inheritance, but he's the one that started it. He's the one that started it. I I love this. I read this in one of the commentators. He chose us as his inheritance. He, He chose us. He predestined us. Not because of what is in our heart, but because of what is in his heart. That's a good one. God chose us because of what was in his heart, not ours. And then if you look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Excuse me, I I, I got ahead of myself. Verse 11b. We have obtained an inheritance. Yes, we have. But it began by God first calling us as his inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That whole idea of according to the counsel of his will, I think, fits into this interpretation as well. What is the counsel of God's will? Remember last week we studied verse 10? That's like the summary verse for this entire section. As a plan from the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. Okay, so, so what's the application? Come up, let me take a breath here, Al. What's the application here? I think, I've got the, I think I've got the illustration. I think I understand that God is choosing me. I'm his inheritance. Yes, he's my inheritance. Who makes out in that deal? We do. His riches become mine. My poverty becomes his. His righteousness becomes mine. My sin becomes him. Jesus, his. Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. But what does that mean? 
What does that mean when it says predestined according to the counsel of his will? Here's what it means. It means that my life, my life is in God's hands, united with Christ. It's not in the hands of, of, in the first century, they were fearful of these spirits, of these gods. These were people who were pagans, and they were fearful of the sun god, the moon, uh, you name it, man. Spirits ruled their life. Artemis, these were these pagan gods. They would go to these temples and try to do offerings, offering up their children sometimes, because they were afraid of what these pagan, these gods were going to do to them. And, and Paul is saying, no, in Jesus Christ, all things are united to God. In Jesus Christ, he's chosen you. Therefore, you don't have to be afraid, Ephesians of fickle gods and spirits who are with you one day and against you the next. Paul is saying, God, the God of the universe has chosen you. He's adopted you. You are his inheritance. You're a part of that long line of people from the Old Testament. Gentiles, you're now part of God's people, united in Christ. So they could trust him. And he's saying the same thing to us this morning. We can trust God. We can rest in God. Are you trusting in God Right now, listen, listen, today, right now, I'm going through a serious challenge that I was not anticipating. This thing came out of left field. Forget left field. This thing came out of the parking lot. Bizarre. And and, and it's tempting me seriously, seriously, to fret, to fear, to wonder, God, what are you doing? And this passage has helped me settle down and trust him. God is not a capricious God who loves me one day and hates me the next. He's not a, quote, what have you done for me lately kind of God. No, he has chosen me to be his inheritance. He has poured out the riches of all that was required to purchase me, as the smidgens have to to spend enormous amounts of money to, to, in a sense, purchase, adopt Lana. He chose me. He chose me to bring glory to his name. Do you believe that right now? You see, verse 12, and now let's look at verse 12, tells us that the reason for this, the reason for this is that we might bring glory to God's name. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. I love this quote from the ESV Study Bible. God's ultimate purpose is not redemption. Oh, I'm so glad the redemption exists. But that's not his ultimate purpose. Listen, God's ultimate purpose is not redemption as such, but the praise of his glorious name through redemption. And this theme is repeated at key junctures in the argument. In fact, if you look at verse 12, it says that to the praise of his glory. If you look at verse 14, it says to the praise of his glory. The theme here, three times we see this, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. In verse 6 we saw, to the praise of his glorious grace. So you know what? If this unexpected and this unwanted trial in my life brings him glory, then I'm okay with that. And I will cry out to God for the grace to trust him and live for the praise of his glory, not mine. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. But what gives me assurance is that I'm his inheritance. He bought me. He chose me before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. I'm his people in the long line of his people.
You know, and it gives me confidence that when I do cry out in prayer, God answers and he gives me of himself. He may not be give, give me what I want. I've been asking for a lot of things lately and, and not, not a whole lot of... I haven't been receiving exactly what I've been asking for, but you know what? I've been receiving exactly what God wants to give me so that my life will be to the praise of his glory. He gives me of his spirit. He gives me of himself. And that's the second point. He seals me and assures me I'm his inheritance chosen by him. And thus, and thus he's my inheritance. See, we are sealed by God's spirit. Now, there's a, there's a big joke in our office about books. If you've been in our office, we have books. We have a lot of books. Over the years, we've gone to seminary, and, you know, you just, we've read a lot of books. Sadly, at the age of 55, I've forgotten what's in most of those books. It's like some of you, I look at your face as a vase. I, I've seen you before. What's your name? Oh, Joseph, my son. Okay, yeah. Uh, and so the joke is, we seal our books, okay? I mean, Corey has this incredibly beautiful seal. You know, I just kind of put a mark on my book, you know? And, and so we seal our books, why? To determine possession. I mean, Corey seals his books. Sometimes he'll seal one of my books and pretend like it's his. I don't complain. I never say anything. I wouldn't even bring it up. It's always funny. When you got a book on your desk and you guy walks in and goes, hey, listen, I'm missing this book. I didn't take it. Can I look? Oops, sorry. Because <laughs> it indicates possession. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in him, let's start with this, okay? Whatever we receive, it's in Christ. Paul's use of in him or in Christ, he just keeps hammering it in these verses. Eleven times, in him, in Christ, in him. It's almost monotonous. Why does he do it? Because he wants to stress this important fact, that it's only in Christ that we are blessed. It's only in Christ that we're inherited. It's only in Christ that we're adopted. It's only in Christ that we're redeemed. It's only in Christ. Oh, let's not forget that. Folks, all that we have is in Christ and Christ alone. This is the big point. You see that phrase, the word of truth in verse 13? In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, That's used by Paul to describe the the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the very next words, the gospel of your salvation. So, So here Paul's making an exclusive claim. It's only through Christ, the word of truth, the gospel, that any blessing at all comes to us. God is the gospel, and he produces our salvation. Romans 1.16 says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew and to the Greek. See, God inherited us in Christ. We are in Christ because of God's choosing, and now he seals us with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, what is that promised Holy Spirit? The promised Holy Spirit comes in the Old Testament, and the promise comes in the Old Testament, and the fulfillment comes in the New Testament, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Now, where is the promise in the Old Testament, you ask? I'm glad you asked that question. I'm ready to answer that one. Look at Galatians 3.14. Look at Galatians 3.14. If someone can just say something, good, Al, yeah, that's great, just to, you know, 
Tell me you're alive. There you go. Galatians 3.14. You can talk during the sermons, just not to one another. Galatians 3.14. Listen to this. So that in Christ, ah, there's that in Christ stuff, in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And what is that blessing? So that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Oh, See, this is why I love this interpretation of verse 11, that we are his inheritance. Because to me, it makes it sing. It's biblical theology. It's big picture stuff. Yes, he is our inheritance, of course. But listen, in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abraham and says, through you, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. How can I say that? Because Galatians 3.14 tells me that. The blessing God has for the nations is to give them his Holy Spirit because the blessing God has for the nations is those who are his elect, his inheritance, is to call them and choose them and elect them and redeem them and fill them with the Spirit and cleanse their their sins and turn them from big-time losers to people of God through the Holy Spirit. We're blessed. Not because we have a lot of money or we're healthy we have nice houses or nice cars or we have relational peace all through our lives, that's not going to happen. If you want that, go to Disney. It doesn't happen there either. People are screaming at each other. But I am blessed because God has given me his spirit. His spirit. And it's the promise he made to Abraham thousands of years ago. And I've been grafted into that promise as a Gentile because of Christ. Oh, it's an exclusive claim. The world would say too exclusive. God says, no, it's only through Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other way. Okay, so we see that, that the promised Holy Spirit in verse 13. All right the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the seal. The seal. Okay, let's think it now back to Alex and Mela's wedding. Let's think about the ring. Let's think about seals. By the way, let me just say something to you. Um, It's it's helpful to study the classics. I I actually, I love the fact that there's a revival of studying Latin amongst many uh, students and many schools. It's good to read some of the classics. You know why? Because God chose to give us his word in a, in a Greek language environment. Okay? And so, so the first century, it's important to try to understand the customs of the first century because God chose to have Paul write this in the first century. So when he uses the term seal, he's not thinking of the 21st century. You understand that? It hadn't occurred yet. He's in the first century. So we've got to study what does a seal mean in the first century? Not in the 21st century. In the first century. And back in the first century, a seal meant often possession. Possession. So if I were to, if I were to seal all my possessions, it would, be, it would be with a mark. Sometimes they would carve a, a coat of arms on a rock and just put the imprint on it. So, so seals indicate possession. All of the person's significant possessions were marked with the impression of the seal. You know, even slaves and livestock were marked by the owner. Now, I didn't grow up, you know, in the West or the Midwest or any of that kind of, you know, places where there's a lot of animals. But if you did, well, that was a pretty eloquent way to say that, wasn't it? Yeah, thank you. But if you did, you know, you would have cattle or branded. (laughs) 
So the Holy Spirit is a seal. And, and in the new covenant, in the new covenant now, after Jesus, the one true God has marked his people as belonging to himself by means of a seal. And listen, this seal is the Holy Spirit. He's the promise. He's the seal. And, and, and he's, he looks to the future of what's to come. And he looks back at what has been. See, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is a firm indication that the person is possessed by God. But not just possession, but protection. Protection. If something is sealed with my seal, and I'm the baddest dude on the playground, or in the city, or on the range with my cattle. (laughs) It's a little nicer, huh? And you steal one of my cattle, I'm coming looking for you. You know, if you're going to take the baddest dude's stuff that has his seal on it, you've got to beat up the baddest dude. That's not going to happen. See, God is the baddest dude in this sense. Biblically, he's sovereign. He's holy. He is, he is awesome. No one is bigger than him. And if we're, he has given us his seal, if we're sealed with God's seal, who will take us from the hand of God? Conflict right now take you from the hand of God? Will your sickness... Will your poverty, will your nakedness, will even the sword, and now I'm quoting Romans 8, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Now, right now, honestly, guys, in my heart, there are times recently I felt separated from the love of God. But what's being tested is my faith. A good friend of mine shared that with me Thursday morning. How? why is your soul so downcast? It served me. Because I don't believe Help my unbelief, God. I believe, help my unbelief. I'm sealed, man. No one can take me out of God's hand. This is, this is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This is the doctrine that, that gives me hope. <laughs> I think of Lana. Once she gets the smidgen seal, their name, she's going to have three brothers to protect her. These are some bad boys, man. The one you have to look out for is Joel. Joel is one seriously strong little guy, okay? And he's like his father. He's immune to pain, so. But Lana's going to have a mother and father to protect her. Right now, she's an orphanage. She's an orphan. Who's going to protect Lana? If someone wants to pick on her, if someone wants to hurt her, if someone wants to take her possessions, who's going to protect her? But when she becomes a smidgen and that seal gets on her, I know my friend Corey and I know Cindy, they will fight for her. They will protect her just like they protect Annika. She'll have a mom and a dad and brothers and a sister. And we are sealed by the Holy Spirit into a family, the family of God. And we should protect one another. But what's most important, God protects us. So who benefits more from the inheritance? Lana or the smidgens? Oh, I know the smidgens benefit. They're happy to go, but it's costing them a lot right now. But the cost is worth it to them because they love her. But she's benefiting. She's going to leave that place naked and with nothing, and she's going to be clothed and given the name and brought to the United States and live in this country and have all that they have and have a new family when she gets here. Oh, praise God, dear friends. He has chosen us, and we live for the praise of his glory because of that. And that's where verse 14 brings us. Look at verse 14. Speaking now of the Holy Spirit, the end of verse 13, it says, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who, the Holy Spirit, 
is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, we've got another decision to make. Remember I told you I'm going to challenge you to make a lot of decisions here? Again, the way the Greek is phrased there, it can either be that we acquire possession of it or God acquires possession of us. So I challenge you to study it. Please, you go study it. I think it's both and. I mean, he's the one that's initiating. He's acquiring possession of us. And obviously, when he acquires possession of us, we acquire possession of it. But it's all by grace. God's the initiator. God's the initiator. But look at this spirit. This, this Holy Spirit causes us to be God's people. See, we're God's possession under God's protection. Think, think with me for a second. Biblical theology. Just go back ever so quickly to Exodus 19. Exodus 19, written at Mount Sinai, when God's people have been redeemed from Pharaoh, a type of Satan, redeemed out of Egypt, a type of the world, gone through the Red Sea, a type of baptism. And the New Testament tells me I can use all these types. And they're brought to Mount Sinai, and God constitutes them as his people. He's going to seal them here. He's going to give them his law as a seal, as a sign. You're mine. And they're freaking out, because there's thunder and lightning and, and the mountain. And if anybody touches the mountain, they die, and they're going, ah! I was, I was saved from Pharaoh, but now I've got to face this God. He's worse than Pharaoh. Yes, he is. But he's, he's adopted you. Worse than Pharaoh in the sense of that what he can do to you. He's actually good. But the wrath of God is greater than the wrath of Pharaoh. All Pharaoh can do is kill your body. God has your soul. But see, there's a promise in here. He says, I'm going to adopt you. You're going to be my inheritance. I'm going to save you. Not because you deserved it, not because what's in your heart, what's in mine, my joy, my pleasure. And look at Exodus 19, verse 5. It says the following. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, we can't do that. He knows that Jesus is going to do it for us. Here's the picture of the gospel. But he calls us to it. You shall be what? My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. In all this earth that is mine, I've chosen you. I've chosen you. I've chosen you. I've chosen you. And then look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Go all the way to the New Testament now. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter's going to use the same phraseology. Why? Because God, the Holy Spirit, who, who anointed and inspired Moses to write Exodus 19, inspired Peter to write 1 Peter 2. And listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. says the following. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, that's right, we weren't. Like Lana, she's not a people, she's an orphan, no family. Once you were not a people, but now, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And this is to the praise of his glory so that we would live not for ourselves, but for him, so that Al could bring glory to God in the midst of a trial, not of my choosing, but of his choosing, because it's not about me being comfortable and peaceful, or even being the winner of anything, or even being vindicated by anything. It's about living for the praise of his glory, and if living for the praise of his glory means I trust him in a time that's confusing and difficult, and maybe even unjust and wrong, then you know what? It's important to live for the praise of his glory. And I think Jesus might have been far more misjudged and far more wrong than me. 
And he lived for the praise of the glory of his Father. So that we might fulfill the law in him. Let me conclude with this rather lengthy quote. I have it here on the screen for you. It'll be online in the notes. The Spirit imparts God's blessings to us, marking us as belonging to God and assuring us of our future with Him. The passage begins and ends with the Spirit of God, as it likewise does with reference to the Father. Yet Christ is at the center of the text. There is thus a strong Trinitarian character to this passage, with the Father as the main planner and initiator of redemption. Christ as the central figure of the plan, who secures the redemption and becomes the nexus point, the central, the key point for the relationship and the redeemed, the redeemed have with God. And the Spirit now, and the Spirit now, as the agent who bestows the blessings on the people God has redeemed. If you, if you look at verse 14, you'll see that it says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it. There's, this, there's a future-looking aspect of it. Uh, this, this idea of a guarantee, it's kind of like a down payment. Even back then, they were using it that way, that term in the first century. It's like earnest money. It's a down payment on something. You put a down payment on a house, on a car, whatever. It's securing it. That's the spirit. We experience some of what we're going to get now, because the Spirit gives it to us. We, we're born again. We're given new eyes. We're healed. We're, we're given joy. But oh my, there's so much more to come. Jesus talks about there's a kingdom you will inherit. There's a, there's a, there's a future glory that helps people like Alpino endure the present suffering. You know, Acts talks about the, the, the hope of the glory to come makes my suffering, virtually nothing, if I'm seeing with the eyes of faith. Look, peer with me just for a second as we conclude at that future glory. Look at glory. Look at Revelation 21. Revelation 21. You're going to see a theme there that is very, very similar. Revelation 21. Just skimming through it. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a what? Revelation 21, verse 2 at the end. What is that word? Bride. Adorned for her husband. Promise. Bride. Husband, Christ, the church, you, me. And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be what? His people. And God himself will be what? With them as their God. Oh yeah, go ahead and interpret it. We're going to obtain our possession, sure. But God says, you're my people. Therefore, if we're his people, he's our God. Again, who benefits the most from that? We have nothing to bring. He's chosen us. And then skipping to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty. 
is what we have to look forward to. And the lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light, and its lamp is the lamb, that's Jesus. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it, and its gates will never be shut by night, and there will be no night there. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Here's what it means. Our fate is held by the God of heaven and earth, the God who began history, the God who will end history. Our, Our lives are held by Him. And the Spirit, God's Spirit, is the one who seals us as God's possession and keeps us so that we might live to the praise of his glory. No one can take us out of God's hands. Listen, Alex, Alex Suarez rejoiced. I watched the man. I was right up close watching his face. Rejoice as he saw Mela come down that aisle. Rejoice that God had chosen her for him. And even more so, the Bible says God rejoices in choosing us as his bride. I don't understand why, but he does. That encourages me. Friends, God the Father adopted us into his family. God the Son redeemed us by his blood. And God the Spirit seals us as his inheritance, his possession, his people. God seals us with himself, with his spirit. You know that under the old covenant, the priest wore a seal. Do you know what that seal said? Holy to the Lord. And you wear a seal today. And you know what it says? Holy to the Lord, my holy people. Friends, God has sealed you as holy to him, devoted to him. We are adopted, redeemed, and sealed as God's people together. Holy, beloved, redeemed, so that we might live for the praise of his glory. Is this how you see yourself? Is this how you're living? Let's pray. Worship team can come up. Father, I pray that you would please give me and my friends this vision of ourselves as your inheritance, as your people. Yes, our inheritance is in Christ, but you chose us for that inheritance. We did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to get it. You have given it to us. Oh God, we are yours, therefore you are ours. Amazing grace. We praise you, oh God of the universe. You who have chosen us, you who have redeemed us, you who have adopted us, you who have sealed us. Lord, if there's anyone here that is doubting that right now, anyone here whose whose trials, present trials, are causing them to not see that, Lord, would you give it to them by your Spirit? God, the Holy Spirit, would come and illuminate this truth and our downcast souls would be raised up and even as David said to his soul bless the Lord oh my soul bless the Lord oh my soul and forget not all his benefits thank you for your spirit apart from whom I would be dead in my sins but you've made me alive now in Christ and the spirit has communicated this to me may I live to the praise of your glory not to my own glory. May I love you, love others, and die to self-love. May we do that as a people, Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to conclude this morning's service by singing a song that we've been singing the last three weeks. It's like an anthem for us. It's a song, Come Praise and Glorify. Please put the chorus up there. Excuse me, verse 1 up there. Please put verse 1 up there. 
It says, come praise and glorify our God. That's the call from verse 3. Let us praise God. And then verse 1 basically summarizes verses uh, 4 to 6. For the Father of our Lord in Christ has poured his blessings on upon us, and he's he's adopted us through his Son. Then put verse 2 up there, please. Verse 2 then summarizes. Verse 1 summarizes verses 4 to 6. Verse 2 then, verse 2 of the song summarizes verses 7 to 10. Come praise and glorify our God who gives gives us His grace in Christ. In Him our sins are washed away, redeemed through sacrifice. In Him God has made known to us the mystery of His will, that Christ should be the head of all, unite all things in Christ. And then put up verse 3. Verse 3 summarizes what we just preached this morning. Come praise and glorify our God, for we've believed His word. Believe His word, friends. And through our faith we have a seal, the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit guarantees our hope until redemption's done, looking to the future, until we join in endless praise to God, the three in one. Stand with me. Let's sing this. It's a declaration of faith and praise to God. <laughs>